0: I hear a lot about this desire to want to be the next Silicon Valley, Mm -hmm. and I think what you're talking about here with making agriculture smarter and Mm -hmm. and using these high-tech new approaches to to having more efficient agriculture Mm -hmm. and more productive agriculture also has the benefit of opening up all these tech jobs Mm -hmm. that can keep some of the, the young folks that are graduating from college in the community.
1: And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Bernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth
2: Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and with me today is Kate Meese, the Executive Director of the Local Government Commission. Hello, Kate.
0: Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me.
2: Kate, I'm really happy to announce to our listeners that you've agreed to be a regular co-host on the show. You've done a few of these shows with us, but now you're going to do one or two of these a month with us going forward. So I'm excited about that.
0: Yeah, me too. I'm looking forward to it.
2: I think as, as folks know, we produce the podcast, SkiO produces the podcast with the local government commission. Uh, you guys have been, you've worked with us on the show from the very beginning. And um, so I'm happy that folks are going to have an opportunity for you to have more of a presence on the show. I have always found you to be one of the more knowledgeable and thoughtful people about issues affecting local government and sustainability and equity. Do you want to share a little bit about the Local Government Commission with our audience, uh, just to remind folks what the Local Government Commission is all about?
0: Sure, I'd love to. So the Local Government Commission is based in California, out of Sacramento, California, but we're a nationally recognized nonprofit organization. We've been around a little over 35 years We have a network of over 700 local government members, and we really fill a unique space at the nexus of local government leadership, smart growth innovation, and environmental stewardship. So we work in a few different areas. We connect leaders through large events. We advance local and state-level policies around smart growth and livable communities, and we implement solutions around climate change, energy, water, and healthy community design.
2: And for folks who want to learn more about the Local Government Commission, how would they, where would they go?
0: To our website at lgc.org.
2: Fantastic. And do you guys have any? You guys do a lot of stuff, a lot of events. So, any upcoming events that you want to uh, give a plug to?
0: sure we have a, a couple upcoming events the the closest one to now uh, the one that's most rapidly approaching is our statewide energy efficiency conference so our our seek forum June 14th through 15th in Fresno California and that really is the preeminent energy efficiency conference in California we'll have a little over 300 350, Uh, local government staff working on energy efficiency issues there so that'll be a a good one to attend especially if you're a local government in California and then we have our new partners for smart growth conference that one's not coming up until next year in February but we just announced that we will be in San Francisco next year February 1st through 3rd so I'm really excited about that and this is a, a national conference that brings together an average of 1,200 practitioners from all over uh, the U.S. that work from public health to public safety. Um, We have equity groups there. We have tribal leaders. It's a, a great diverse mix of leaders and practitioners that come together to work on smart growth.
2: Yeah. And that's a, that's a great conference. We'll be plugging that throughout the year and, and we'll make sure that we'll probably be doing a series leading up to that conference uh, later this year, beginning of next year. So, so Kate today, so we're going to be doing a, a podcast this week and next week. And I, our topic is a broadband access. Uh, do you want to share with folks a little bit about our two guests and, and what we're going to try to talk about this week versus what we'll talk about next week?
0: Sure. So we we have a a couple leaders that are working on broadband access, uh, an increasingly important issue for community leaders from everything to telehealth and telecommuting to environmental initiatives that they can access through smart cities and smart buildings and agriculture. So we have a, a couple folks that are going to be joining us. Trish Kelly from Valley Vision, the the vice president there, will join us to talk about the initiatives she's been working on in the the Sacramento region and throughout the state to really close the digital divide and to ensure more access for broadband across the, the region and really the state. So she'll talk to us about some of those issues. And then we're really pleased to have Assemblymember Cecilia Aguiar on with us as well. She's leading a bill in California, the Internet for All Now Act, with some other members that is focused on, again, closing that that digital divide. So this is an important issue here in the state of California. And we have a number of folks actually from Sacramento that are going out on a cap to cap trip led by our Chamber of Commerce, the Metro chamber, that would be taking this to the federal government as a, a key priority for the region as well so we 're seeing a lot of business members very interested in this we 're seeing our learning institutions stepping up our hospitals and really all noticing that and recognizing that this is going to be a, a critical issue for economic prosperity moving into the future
2: yeah and while well, we're we have two guests and we 're focusing on specific issues in California the conversation is really a national conversation right this access Absolutely. to to broadband is a huge issue and i think it's um it'll be interesting to see what the assembly woman has to say about what's happening in washington right now it's kind of an interesting dynamic going on right so i've heard people talk about access to the internet broadband being a, a more of a civil right and and where we don't have access is largely the worst places are rural areas in this country, right? And this administration really ran in support of those areas. But at the same time, their most recent budget proposals have been about kind of cutting subsidies for infrastructure to, or and programs to more rural areas. So, I mean, one of the reasons we don't have broadband in rural areas is because there's not as many people there and there's a pretty big cost for the infrastructure and we're already seeing proposals in terms of airline service, in terms of rail service to cut subsidies to those areas. So it'll be interesting to see how this administration responds to that challenge.
0: Well, and it's interesting that you talk about, you know, cutting some of the the, the services and the, the infrastructure, whether that's airlines uh, or other infrastructure, because that that makes something like broadband that much more important. Rural areas already have issues attracting doctors and, and, um, having issues attracting large job centers. So things like telehealth and telecommuting are really critical in these rural areas to be able to, you know, access uh, a lot of the the resources that are available more, more broadly at the national level. So, you know, I think we'll get into a catch 22 where we, we don't have the infrastructure, but then we also are, getting further and further behind because we're not able through access to broadband to take advantage of all the opportunities that our urban counterparts have available to them.
2: Yeah. And as we've, we've, you know, we've talked a little bit, I think on this show about the American economy, two thirds of the GDP was, is being generated by more urban areas that voted largely for Hillary Clinton. One third of our GDP is being generated largely by exurban and rural areas that voted for Donald Trump. And now you've got this dynamic where the Internet in particular is so vital and infrastructure is so vital to participation in the economy. You've got this kind of upside down dynamic, right, where the rural areas need more government subsidies in order to participate in the economy. And we have an administration that's coming in and saying – Where We need to cut government subsidies. So it seems like these two things are very much at cross purposes, and it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over the next couple of years.
0: Absolutely. And I look forward to diving into those topics with our speakers.
2: So why don't we get started?
0: Well, Trish, welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you with us today. So Trish Kelly is the Senior Vice President of Valley Vision, which is a nonprofit organization here in Sacramento, California. That conducts research and leads multi-stakeholder initiatives to address problems like access to internet, healthcare, healthy food, and clean, sustainable communities. Trish, Trish's contributions at Valley Vision have focused on regional food systems and agriculture, broadband, economic vitality, and quality of life indicators. She is managing Valley Vision's agriculture and food system projects and the Connected Capital Area Broadband Consortium. So Trish, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad you could be here today to talk about an increasingly important community issue, access to broadband. So we want to go ahead and just dive in. And I thought this quote wrapped it up nicely, the, the issue that we're facing in a congressional letter to the new administration in January, and it said, In the 21st century, high speed Internet access is no longer a luxury amenity, but rather an essential service for homes, businesses in this interconnected world, homes and businesses in this interconnected world. No other technology has produced as much innovation, competition and economic growth. So, so that's the challenge and the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Clearly, we don't all have that access, and that's mm-hmm. the, the issue that many communities are mm-hmm. facing. So talk to us a little bit about how you
3: personally got engaged in this issue. Well, first of all, Kate, thank you so much for inviting us to participate. It's always a pleasure to work with the local government commission and your leadership as you push forward on these important issues. Uh, I started this process... Almost uh, more than 10 years ago, we were working with the governor's cabinet looking at issues that really impeded or affected rural economic vitality, and broadband kept coming up as the number one issue. So that led to a series of activities which have culminated for many of us in the regions in a program that's uh, supported through the Public Utilities Commission that provides funding for regional broadband consortium and then also funding for infrastructure and other uh, opportunities to help meet our infrastructure gap. So many of our rural areas, especially, but also some of our urban areas, are underserved or unserved.
0: I think many people would be surprised to hear that, even in the tech pioneer mm-hmm. California, mm-hmm. that the digital divide is so prevalent. Can you yes. talk a little bit yes. about the stats on on mm-hmm. you know who's being left behind mm-hmm. in this divide?
3: Well, every year there's a public survey that tracks overall adoption and infrastructure deployment across our regions and across the state. So we are making progress. But we know, for instance, a recent survey by the Public Utility Commission showed that only 47% of our rural areas have the same Internet access as urban areas. So that's a huge divide. In our region, we looked at the grades using public utilities data on our infrastructure in four of our counties that make up our consortium, and the grades range from C- to F+. So clearly, we're very far behind, even so close, 15 minutes to the state's capital. We estimate that 15,000 households are underserved and more than 21,000 households are unserved, which is 90,000 people just in our region alone. And so when we talk to a lot of Funders and people in the field, they're astonished because they really believe that California is like Silicon Valley in all ways and that we have access and adoption everywhere and we don't. So that's the mission of our broadband consortia and partners like the California Emerging Technology Fund to really help not only bridge this gap and make sure everybody has equal access to opportunity, but that we're driving new technologies and we're leaders in this field.
0: That's great. And you brought up underserved. I've been hearing about this emerging population mm-hmm. new definition of underserved mm-hmm. or underconnected mm-hmm. residents. Can you speak
3: to what exactly that means? Underserved might mean that you don't have enough competition in service, so your service might be unreliable, it might be too cost prohibitive, you might not have access to the technologies that you need to connect. You you could maybe you're connecting by a cell phone, but you don't have access to a computer. So you can't write a paper for school on a computer, or it's very hard to do a job search, or it's very hard to get healthcare services online. So we have a lot of variations of what underserved looks like.
0: Yeah, and you you were talking about the rural-urban divide, and we know there are urban areas um, with pockets of of people that are underserved or Mm -hmm. underconnected. You know, beyond the density level mm-hmm. and the the geographic nature, there are pockets of certain community mm-hmm. members that have higher rates of being underconnected mm-hmm. or underserved. Can you mm-hmm. talk about what that, that looks like in terms of the demographic breakdown?
3: Yes, the data shows through the PUC and other surveys that the hard-to-serve markets or the underserved markets include high levels of poverty, economically disadvantaged, people who have disabilities communities of color, so, and then we also have challenges in some of our older neighborhoods and our kind of industrial parks or job centers, those are areas that didn't have forward-leading broadband infrastructure, so while the PUC focuses on households and access, we're also looking at businesses and community development, so We're finding that that's that's a very important target area as well, and that helps a lot of small businesses and minority-owned businesses to compete and to have access to the same tools. But as an example, in our neighborhood here in Sacramento, we are working with the community. It's a low-income housing project, and there are 700 households there, and 40% of the households report that they don't have access to just basic needs to get connected so they don't also have access to transportation or access to jobs, so they're falling further behind. Mm-hmm. It's really like a it's a civil rights issue almost in terms of equity and access. So we're working in that community on a school-to-home project where we're helping to connect the children in the school and the teachers with technology, but then also the families get connected, and then that benefits the whole community.
0: That's great, and and just thinking about how quickly jobs are changing. and mm-hmm. mm-hmm. We've talked on this podcast about autonomous vehicles or driverless vehicles and and the potential to have up to 5 million mm-hmm. jobs lost similar to what we saw mm-hmm. with this shift away from manufacturing and that's going to need a pretty resilient workforce yes. training and vocational right. training program mm-hmm. that can be able to respond to these rapid changes yes. in how we're working and where mm-hmm. we're working So speak a little more to Mm -hmm. the economic development impact of that, especially for, you know, community Mm -hmm. members, like you said, Mm -hmm. that have already historically been left behind and now don't have just the most
3: fundamental tool to stay ahead. Yes. Thank you. So this is a huge challenge, but an opportunity as well to give people the skills that they need to have a core foundation of obviously being able to use technology and Communication technologies, but build their skills and be on the front edge so that they can participate in some of these new industries. But I think the other thing that's really exciting is that we know that coding, for instance, is a huge skill that we need across many industries. And we know that we have a huge skills gap and workforce need. So if we can better align our training resources to help communities and help kids especially get interested and aware and start with this foundation, I think we can really build a very competitive workforce and provide great jobs for people. You know, we work with partners like Hacker Lab here in Sacramento, which really work on trying to make learning fun and provide new ways to make different things. But also the coding is one of the foundations of that, and we know that a lot of communities including girls, are underrepresented in STEM. So helping lots of different people get access to these tools and be put on a pathway is going to position us to be able to have that workforce we need for new emerging industries. Because as you know, what the jobs are today, it's going to look very different five years from now. We can't even predict, but if we can give people the core skills and then a pathway to build, you know, the community colleges have new career technical training money through the Strong Workforce Programme. And the workforce boards and others are helping in our nonprofits that we really have an opportunity to look forward and connect people. But we need that core infrastructure. Yep. Schools need the technology to be able to integrate uh, learning in their, in their curriculum. Kids need to be able to do their homework at home. You know, you've seen pictures of kids in rural areas sitting outside a library in the afternoon because even if they have Internet at school and a device, they can't use the device at home because they don't have broadband. So it's actually a huge competitiveness issue for us as well. Mm -hmm. And an environmental Mm -hmm. issue as well. So a lot of
0: the advances Mm -hmm. that we're making in whether it's energy efficiency, smart building, Mm -hmm. smart grid relies, the smart piece of this on the the Internet and Mm -hmm. broadband. So Mm -hmm. I know Valley Vision has done some work looking at the connection between broadband and the environment. Can you highlight some of the findings that... You guys were able to highlight?
3: Yes, thank you. We did this work under the sponsorship of the California Emerging Technology Fund. Their board was really interested in looking at how broadband can help us achieve our environmental goals and our health goals. So we looked at the various areas where... You can find these benefits. So the most simple would be if people can get online to services, they don't drive. So they reduce their vehicle miles traveled, which has an air quality impact and emissions impact. But we found so many more areas. We found, for instance, you have this less driving for e-health and telemedicine, but also health outcomes show that they actually end up improving because people are better monitored and better tracked. And, and so that's, that's a very positive benefit. And then we have, environmentally, one of the areas we looked at was agriculture. So we found that if you can deploy these new emerging ag technologies in the field, you can reduce water and energy use and at the same time increase increase productivity. But if you reduce the water usage, you're also reducing energy use because so much energy is used to transport water. So there's multiple benefits like that. And then, of course, deploying all the technologies around smart buildings and smart grid. So we see broadband as the enabling technology for all of that. And it it includes a smart transportation system going to uh, decarbonizing our infrastructure for transportation and fuels. All of these things need broadband for communications and the, the technologies that allow you to deploy these cool technologies that we are developing. So we think there's a huge environmental impact And this is another area that we want to explore about how you can measure and monitor. So just on the ag side, we have a project now in Yolo County, and we're partnering also with Fresno State in Fresno County to document how farmers are able to achieve these environmental and economic benefits by being able to test and pilot these technologies. But we're documenting also where we don't have the broadband access. And so what's really become clear working through this ag tech pilot. It's not just on farm. it's, It's in the communities. It's the businesses that serve the whole supply chain of farming. And right now, a lot of farmers in our rural areas, say down in Clarksburg in the Delta, they have to drive to a Starbucks to upload the data that they need to report to the state on how they use pesticides or other kinds of usages, or if they want to connect with their markets, or if they want to upload the data that they've been collecting in the field about how when they should water more efficiently. So I think that there are so many ways that we can benefit from all of this. And again, making sure that none of our communities are left behind is really an important priority for us.
0: Absolutely. And I I grew up in the San Joaquin Valley, a very agricultural area, and still do a lot of work in in Fresno and some other communities. And we hear a lot about this desire to want to be the next Silicon Valley. And I, I think what you're talking about here with with making agriculture smarter and, mm-hmm. and using these high-tech new approaches mm-hmm. to to having more efficient agriculture mm-hmm. and more productive agriculture also has the benefit of opening up all these yes. tech jobs mm-hmm. that can keep some of the mm-hmm. the young folks that are graduating from college in the community and mm-hmm. hopefully address some of the brain drain we've seen mm-hmm. out of these communities. I know that a lot of the folks that I went to school with didn't necessarily want to stay and get jobs yep. in agriculture, but they are more likely mm-hmm. to if, the, if they're technology related jobs. Yes.
3: And technology is infusing everything, every part of our industry. So I think what our job it needs to be also is to show people what these jobs of the future look like and how technology is infused. For instance, on tractors, their tractors have computers on them. They're, and it's real-time monitoring. And there's a symbiosis between the technologies our universities are developing and be able to test and deploy them in the field. And we have very innovative farmers, so it's kind of the nexus of bringing this all together. And we have a gap in our uh, our next generation of farmers. The, the average age of a farmer is 58 years old. So a lot of the younger farmers are, we're working with tell us, you know, Labor is going to be an issue too, so we need these new technology tools to be able to not only farm, but to be leaders in the global food challenge as well as feeding our own community. So it's our Silicon Valley-esque approach is that we want to be the leaders. We are the leaders in so many ways with ag and the whole value chain of processing. Let's keep that innovation going and being able to deploy and test and use these technologies to make our agriculture the most sustainable and prosperous in the world. Absolutely. And help our communities because like you said, this then affects all the jobs that are in the communities that support the tech sector and the ag sector. So how do we how do we get there, Trish?
0: What what are some steps that we can take mm-hmm. either as a local government mm-hmm. leader or
3: as a community member mm-hmm. to position our communities mm-hmm. for these opportunities? Well, there are a couple of strands. One is to make sure that we have continued public investment in helping do our regional planning to identify these gaps and opportunities and then make sure that we have the infrastructure funding to get the core pieces that we need in place to deploy. So you may know that there's a bill, AB 1665, that's being heard in the assembly this week, actually, and there are more than 70 partners and communities, including many local officials, local elected officials across the state. And this is a huge priority for for all of us, the consortia, there are about 15 broadband consortia across the state, and they, they include community members, hospitals, schools, workforce boards, nonprofit housing, and local governments. Local governments are the foundation of our consortia. So we are responding to the needs of our communities through this process to make sure that we have continued investment through the California Advanced Services Fund, which um, is then provided by the PUC. The other area that's huge, I think, is in our workforce. So we have new community college funding for career technical education. So we're really trying to build both looking at the food and ag, but also the information communications industries as ways to get training. And so this is a great thing that community colleges has more money for makerspaces. Makerspaces are a great way to get kids from earlier grades and high school, tracking into the community colleges and getting these skills. So it's really making learning fun. It's making learning accessible, and it's showing you how you can have real-time, solve real-time challenges. You know, there are ag hackathons you see uh, Ag and Natural Resources is having a big Ag Hackathon uh, festival this summer with the California State Fair. So we're really looking for opportunities to partner down in the San Joaquin Valley. There's a Farm of the Future where they do Ag Hackathon. So it's not only actually on farm, it's it's also tools like how you look at the land that you have to do urban agriculture. How do you help people get connected to farmers markets and, you know, help address food access issues? So this Ag Tech Bundle can do a lot of different things. So we're really excited about the opportunity to look at our workforce side too. Great.
0: So are there some specific steps that your average Mm -hmm. resident could take? Would I be Mm -hmm. asking for a dig once policy, Mm -hmm. for example, or would I be asking for Wi-Fi in public spaces Mm -hmm. or connected to Mm -hmm. new streetlights? I mean, what are some just basic
3: steps that we should be thinking about asking from our community leaders. Yes, and I think what we'd love to do, of course, as we've discussed, is work with the local government commission to really look at some of these new innovations that are happening because it all manifests itself on the ground in the community. So one of the things we've looked at is kind of the planning tools and the ordinances local governments have for things like trenching. If you do a project like a a road project, are you looking at that as a way to put conduit for your fiber in? So being very thoughtful and making sure that we have those policies in place and asking developers if you're putting a new housing project in or you're retrofitting a space and you're opening a trench, is broadband conduit there and can we add that? Sometimes local governments can even monetize uh, revenue from leasing the infrastructure that they do have in place to, to potential users. I think we also need to make sure that we are documenting as best we can the speeds that we have in the community, the number of providers. I say reach out to your telecommunications providers, partner with them, find out where they're planning to do new investments, and can you partner with them to make sure you're hitting some of your underserved or unserved areas. I think another area that's really important is to look at your um, schools and hospitals and look for opportunities to collaborate with them as anchor institutions. Can you be building out from those communities, or do the schools especially have the access they need? So there are many different roles. Of course, we encourage everybody to be part of the consortia, but I think in this planning side is is really an important place where local government can see. And then the other things that we know is even – mapping, do you know where your broadband infrastructure is? Mm-hmm. Where can you put Wi-Fi hotspots to make sure that the community has opportunities to have mobile working spaces? This is really important in the way we work in the 21st century. Wi-Fi enable safe, secure hotspots that create community for people, too, and help entrepreneurs and people that want to connect in different ways.
0: I think the the interesting opportunity here, in addition to all the other things we've discussed, is if we can work with our community leaders to figure out ways to make high speed internet more widely available, yes. it's also a tool that you can then use to engage citizens Absolutely. with government in a better yes. way to make yeah. that that e-government connection. Mm-hmm. A lot of local leaders are opening up, you know, open data portals yeah. to share information mm-hmm. about where community resources are going Mm -hmm. or you know anything from crime statistics to you know Mm streetlight information Mm -hmm. so it's also a way that then you can really engage
3: the community in a much more robust fashion yeah it makes information so much more accessible and so much more timely too, because I know in like here with the city, I can go online to the 311 and post something and I get a response within 24 hours. And it just, it's so much more efficient for government too. It saves money, it increases transparency and just pushes information out. It makes people feel more connected. They can see what's happening in their community. And I think that's another really important overlooked aspect Mm -hmm. of why broadband is so important for everybody to have that same capability. So I think also government can be looking at um the kind of funding and resources you need if you have gaps in your infrastructure. Be looking to that future. Even if you have good capabilities now, technology is changing so fast in the way we use technology that it's if you think of it as a sort of a superhighway, we're gonna need to increase way more than what we have. So be planning for the future as uh, we were in an ag tech meeting and somebody said don't be planning for megabits be planning for gigabits and that is going to signal to people that your community is a smart community you're investing for the future and people want to be in that place where people be, can be connected and know that that thinking of this as a critical infrastructure is really on the minds of the planning leaders and i think so looking at tools like enhanced infrastructure financing districts getting yourself ready for how you can deploy infrastructure is another Mm -hmm. important aspect for
2: cities to consider. Great.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us. Is there
3: any last takeaway that you want to leave folks with?
2: So Trish, maybe you could also share with people where they could learn more about your work.
3: You can go to valleyvision.org and we have information about our broadband consortium. If you go to the California Emerging Technology Fund, which is CETFund.org, you'll find a lot of information about the various initiatives and ways that cities can be engaged. uh, CETF has a toolkit for planning ordinances and other innovations that local governments can look at. And we'd be happy to provide any information for people, too, to help you get connected to a consortium in your region. Great. Thank you, Tresh. Yes, and the PUC, of course, has information as well. Okay. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
2: Yeah, this is such a rich topic. Thank you so much, Trish, for your time. Oh, thank you. Kate, this is um, such a great topic, and I'm I'm really looking forward to our conversation next week with the Assemblywoman. But we, I think we decided we would close these shows out with each of us sharing a little something we're seeing in the news that's caught our eye. So anything on your radar screen that's of interest?
0: Yeah, so this weekend thinking about... The multiple things going on, Earth Day, the marches for science that we saw popping up in cities all over the world. And, you know, I think the fact that for me personally, I was spending Sunday um, participating in the final vows for my sister-in-law, who was taking her final vows as a sister in the Verben Day Catholic Church, you know, really got me thinking about the connection between faith and politics and and science. And I saw an interesting article that came out a few days ago that led with the title Evangelical Leaders Find Climate Change Message a Tough Sell. And it talked about this connection um, that we started this episode with between Voters in more rural, conservative-leaning communities, um, and, and in particular, evangelical Christians, eight in ten voted for Donald Trump, who is has proposed, of course, cutting the budget for the Environmental Protection Act, and you know has not been someone who's been willing to acknowledge climate change, and in, in fact, the opposite has has called it a, a conspiracy and has fought to um, eliminate a number of the steps we've been able to take on climate change. So you ha- you really have this disconnect with the evangelical Christians who are supporting Trump and his movements against environmental stewardship and many of the, the components that the faith community really stands behind. So I, I just think it's a, an interesting opportunity to think about how we can, you know, better make the, the connection to the tenets that the the faith community feels so strongly about, um, you know, taking care of community members that need it the most and taking care of, you know, the environment as environmental stewards. And, and this article quoted um, Reverend Mitch Hesox, from, who's the president of the Evangelical Environmental Network, which has 80 organizations and three million Christians as members, and they t- he talked about evangelicals voting for Trump for the a primary reason, which was to put someone on the Supreme Court who had overturned Roe versus Wade, and, and his point was, you know, we need people to see that pro-life isn't just about abortion, but it's really about all life, and so how do we think about, you know, being Pro life, as about improving air quality in poor neighborhoods and improving the, the health of children and the people that are already on this planet. So, you know, it just got me really thinking about this large opportunity between faith and, and climate science, really. Um, there's a great piece that Eco America did, they've, they've got some messaging and a, a guidebook called Let's Talk Climate. And they've worked with these different groups. I'm on the local government group, but they also have a a faith community group. And so they've got some interesting guidance for how to particularly connect with this issue with the faith community. So something that we're definitely going to be thinking more about at the local government commission to really bring on, you know, a, a new level of connection between the faith community in in the areas we work and our climate science work.
2: Well, your what well, your observation actually just totally changed my observation. I, I need to share with you. Have you <laughs> have you been watching the um, Have you seen the series The Year of Living Dangerously? No. So the Year of Living Dangerously is I I've been touting this to everybody. It's a series that is being executive produced by James Cameron and Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, for National Geographic and they're in their second season and it's incredibly well done series about climate change and it it hits on science issues it 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 brings in kind of celebrities. Arnold went out and was out with the uh, forest firefighters in California telling their story and connecting it to the bigger picture. But in one of the first episodes, they focused on a woman who is a minister in, um, in an evangelical community in Texas that's been really incredibly hard hit by climate change, where the local agricultural facilities have closed down because of climate change. And... It, it follows her and her communicating to her congregation and to other people. It's kind of become her mission. How do I communicate that faith and science are not in competition with each other? Right. And that so I highly recommend the series. And you may want to um, watch that that episode in particular about how to communicate to the evangelical community. That's great. So Kate, thank you so much. I'm excited that we're going to be working together, and thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth
1: Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the local government commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, Visit our website at InfiniteEarthRadio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash InfiniteEarthRadio and Twitter by following at InfiniteEarthRadio.